How's China doing at increasing its renewable power capacity? And who is funding the climate activist demonstrations disrupting UK oil operations? Welcome to the Climate Recap from the Beckosphere Climate Corner, your go-to place for international and US-based climate news. I'm Becky Hogue, a science writer. Today is Wednesday, May 4th. Let's jump right into the news you need to start your day. Let's start with some climate events, and we've got to start in Pakistan again. The city of Jacobabad reached one of the highest temperatures for April in recorded history at a whopping 120.2 degrees Fahrenheit, or 49 degrees Celsius. Let's also remember there's extremely high humidity in that part of the world too, making these heat waves even more deadly. Even just being in 90 degrees can be deadly when that high of humidity is in the mix. Overall, Pakistan saw its hottest April in 112 years. This is true for northern India too, which is seeing some punishing temperatures. Most Indian homes don't have air conditioning, and those who do are dealing with rolling blackouts from such high energy demand. Some have begun getting creative, using solar reflective white paint and bamboo roofs to try to stay cool. India's wheat yields are starting to fail due to the heat, and some crops in the hottest areas dropped by half. This paired with the Russian war in Ukraine means even more strain on the global wheat supply. On to another developing story. A thousand New Mexico firefighters are still battling the largest wildfire in the United States as strong winds continue to push it towards a small town. Ash has already made it over there, about seven miles. The fire has already burned down 166 homes, growing from 103 square miles or 266 square kilometers on Friday to 152 square miles or 393 square kilometers by early Saturday. The fire was started on April 6th as a controlled burn that went rogue. No disincontrolled burns though, because they're a great wildfire prevention tool, but not in this case. Then in a firefighter's apocalyptic nightmare, this fire merged with another fire and continued to grow. It was 30% contained Saturday, but now with more winds expected, it doesn't look good. Now to some climate studies. A new report by the Climate Council found that 1 in 25 homes in eastern Australia will be uninsurable due to flooding and cyclone vulnerability by 2030. They mapped out 10 electorates across the country considered most at risk. If you live in that part of Australia, I suggest you check out the link by following the source list link in the description below. Overall, Australia's insurance system is not equipped to handle climate change. Australia's Security and Investments Commission estimates 80% of Australian households are currently underinsured. In other news, methane emissions from cow burps have now been seen from space for the first time, which is good, meaning that farmers can now track emissions using satellite data. This will hopefully empower them to know how much emissions they need to cut and where. Now let's look at some climate victories, or should I say climate news, because honestly many of these stories are just complex and I don't have any specific climate fails today. Though to start off with an all-around climate victory story, let's start in Japan. Tokyo Railways, which run through the famous Shibuya Scramble Crossing, started running entirely on renewable energy on April 1st. This is the first of Japan's railways to do so, avoiding emissions equivalent to 56,000 Japanese homes. Japan is the fifth highest emitter in the world, and this gets it one step closer to its goal of 46% below 2013 emissions levels by 2030 and net zero emissions by 2050. 
Over to China. The China Electric Power News reported the country has installed 25.4 gigawatts of renewable power capacity so far this year, representing 80% of the country's newly installed capacity so far. China's overall renewable power capacity, which is made up of hydropower, wind, photovoltaic, solar, and biomass, is now at 1,088 gigawatts in all. For the record, I said renewable, not clean, as biomass and sometimes hydropower still emits greenhouse gases. Anyways, renewable energy accounted for 43.5% of China's energy capacity in 2021, and this new addition helps them get closer to it representing half. The fact that it represents almost half and they're still the top emitter in the world really shows how absolutely massive the country's energy demand is. Moving our attention now to India, which has just signed a series of bilateral green development agreements with Germany. Germany is providing the South Asian country $10.5 billion from now until 2030 to boost its clean energy, biodiversity, sustainable agriculture, and other methods of decreasing emissions. Germany has been trying to get India to condemn Russia's invasion of Ukraine, and while India's Prime Minister Modi did say that they should stop fighting and that neither party will win this war, he did not condemn the Kremlin. That being said, India's Tata Steel announced it would stop buying Russian coal, which is a big deal, especially since India is experiencing a domestic coal shortage while they're trying to keep up with energy demand. Coal represents 70% of India's energy supply. Germany and India have also signed a green hydrogen cooperation agreement. Their goal is to make that form of clean energy more commercially available. Speaking of Germany, I haven't spoken in a sec about Europe's efforts to transition away from Russian fossil fuels, mostly because right now it's just involving redistributing where the fossil fuels are coming from, not how much of their energy fossil fuel in general supplies. Germany recently said that quitting Russian crude oil by late summer looks realistic. Russian oil now accounts for 12% of Germany's exported supply, while Russian gas accounts for 35% and coal accounts for 8%. These are huge declines from before the war, when Russian imports represented over half of Germany's gas imports, for example. But this decreasing reliance on Russian fossil fuels isn't the same thing as decreasing fossil fuel dependency. It can be, but right now, that's not what it means. The European Union is looking to Africa for oil, which might be beneficial to Africa's economy in the short term, but harmful to their environment in the long term. Italian firm ENI just signed an agreement with the Algerian state-owned energy company to speed up gas projects and import some to Italy. Meanwhile, the French signed an agreement with a gas company in Texas to get U.S. gas sent to them in the first U.S. contract with a European country since the White House said it would help reduce Europe's reliance on Russia. I'll let you know if and when Germany and other European countries decide to take the next step to reduce their fossil fuel reliance overall, but for right now, we're thinking short term. That was a big deviation from climate victories, but now that we're in the U.S., let's talk about some climate victories there. California ran on 100% clean energy for the first time on Monday. Specifically, it maintained 100% clean energy for exactly 15 minutes before dropping down to running on 97%, which was its previous record last month. That's a huge achievement for the fifth largest economy in the world. Most of that energy came from giant solar farms south of Los Angeles. 
Governor Newsom's budget proposal for next year includes around $2 billion to boost the transition to 100% electricity all the time. California has set a goal of achieving 100% clean electricity by 2045, which is 10 years later than Biden's plan for the country's electricity supply. Renewable energy currently accounts for 59% of California's electricity supply. Speaking of California, the environmental activist group that's been disrupting petrol stations in England are actually funded by an L.A. philanthropy group called the Climate Emergency Fund. The fund has made donations to climate activists in 25 countries, including the United Kingdom, the U.S., Australia, Canada, France, Germany, and Switzerland. Donations this year, though, have primarily focused in the UK, where CEF has given $650,000 to groups like Just Stop Oil, Extinction Rebellion, and Insulate Britain. They continue to seek out groups who would benefit from $50,000 to $100,000 in donations. They say they won't fund any illegal activity, just organization efforts. Some philanthropists who have donated to the group include Don't Look Up producer Adam McKay, and Eileen Getty, the granddaughter of the former petrochemical giant founder and richest man in the world, Jean Paul Getty. Meanwhile, the Biden administration began a $3.1 billion effort Monday to spur domestic production of advanced electric vehicle batteries in an effort to reduce transportation emissions and reduce reliance on Russian fossil fuels. Right now, though, China controls 80% of the critical mineral supply needed to create these batteries, which is where the Defense Production Act Biden invoked last month comes into play, allowing the government to explore more avenues for mining for critical minerals domestically. Biden said it will be done with consultation from local communities and tribal groups and using high environmental standards, though it's too soon to tell if that promise will be kept and how long it will take for U.S. critical mineral supplies to reduce reliance on China. Biden wants half of all cars sold in the U.S. to be electric by 2030. A new analysis by Niskanen Center found that there's a huge disparity in U.S. EV subsidies which so far have spurred adoption primarily in progressive states along the coasts. The middle, which has most of the drivers that actually drive the longest distances because they're in rural areas, is still largely untapped. The report suggests that if subsidies were linked to miles driven, it would encourage adoption by those they call super users, the top 10% of drivers that account for 30% of gas use. Their adoption of electric vehicles could have 10 times the emissions impact as the super regressives currently purchasing EVs. Let's end today with some news in the world of carbon capture technology. The Department of Energy announced $3.5 billion to go to four regional direct air capture hubs with the guidance of the nonprofit Carbon 180. This represents a 400-time increase in the global DAC market. To be eligible for the program, the hub must eventually be capable of capturing at least 1 million metric tons of carbon dioxide annually. Carbon 180 says it is seeking to ensure that direct air capture is used, quote, as a means to remediate legacy carbon emissions rather than as an excuse to continue with business as usual emissions. That's the real kicker right there, because a lot of environmentalists are skeptical of the money going towards carbon capture projects because a lot of them are being hooked up to fossil fuel plants to try to wish away those emissions. Carbon capture itself is not a bad investment, especially since the most recent IPCC report said that we need carbon capture to keep warming below 2 degrees Celsius above pre-industrial levels at this point. 
And that was your climate news for Wednesday, May 4th. If you like the work I do, please follow this podcast, give it a five-star rating, leave a review, and consider checking out the Beckosphere Climate Corner YouTube channel. Remember to talk about the climate crisis every single day and to support your local news organizations. Bye for now.